Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Oh, this week's classic episode. This is a great one, man. This is a little bit of a, an historical moment for stuff they don't want you to know. Far, far before our pal uh, Jeremy Corbell began his own podcast, uh, he reached out to us. He did. And we met him for the first time. We talked to him for the first time. And we did the, a large amount of that on air when we were talking about a video series he made. I think it was a, a specific video that he had created a movie about implants, like p- potentially extraterrestrial implants, pieces of metal or materials left behind in people who've had abduction experiences. Yeah, Patient 17. Uh, and Jeremy's a fantastic guy. We still uh, we still chat with each other. Uh, you can check out his newest project, Weaponized, with George Knapp. Uh, in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this conversation we had with him quite a few years ago about alien abductions and implants. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now. Or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. You are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today we are delving into something that I'm frankly surprised we have never, not once, covered on this show. Is it because of my my crippling fear of surgery? <laughs> you know, that's a really <laughs> great point. Uh, yeah. We're discussing alien abductions and possible implantation today, everybody. Mm -hmm. And we're not doing it alone. As you know, friends and neighbors in the audience, we are 
big fans of pursuing primary sources, and we want to hear from the experts. And maybe today we'll even learn whether or not we have unknown implants. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, an investigative filmmaker that we're all huge fans of. Matt, would you do the honors? Absolutely. Today on the show, we have Jeremy Corbell. He is, he's made several films throughout his career. He is a uh, martial artist and was for a very long time. And there are some fascinating things we're going to get into later about that. And what we're specifically talking about is his series of films called Extraordinary Beliefs, where he delves into various aspects of the unknown. And today specifically, we're talking about one entry in that series called Patient 17. Please welcome to the show, Jeremy Corbell. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. Big fan of your show. Excited to be part of it. Well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Patient 17, which uh, deals in a an investigatory documentary style uh, with the concept of highly advanced implants. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, for a lot of people, sounds like something they would they, – they probably heard rumors about. Maybe they've, they've read some things. They might have seen some clips online of someone who believes they found an implant or that they have witnessed an abduction even uh, – but Patient 17 dives into the human side of it, uh, objectively examining the facts and the claims in, in the narrative from these patients. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to take the steps on this journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, for me, a very obscure topic, even looking into and investigating in the UFO field for many years. I didn't want to touch this topic with a 10-foot pole. It was outside of the scope of any part of my imagination. Uh, let's back up just one moment, which is that my, my whole series is called Extraordinary Beliefs. And in this work, what I try to do is I seek out ordinary people, hopefully of high credibility, with extraordinary beliefs. That's the basic idea of this series that I'm creating and have been creating for a long time. During that process, I was approached by a very famous doctor in the field of ufology named Dr. Roger Lear, and he's been a man who had cut out 16 alleged alien implants. They alleged them to be nanotechnological devices that help monitor the human race. I mean, this is an extraordinary claim, and he's an ordinary, he was an ordinary guy. Uh, He just had a really interesting life. So at first I said no multiple times. And then, you know, he convinced me. He said, Jeremy, I've been going through this for over two decades. There's something to it. And so I said, okay, I'm going to film this. I'm going to film your 17th surgery, which sadly ended up being his final and last surgery as he had a heart attack and died during the production. And he was a good friend. And so it it was sad to see him go. But during that process, I came at it, if you watch the film, with almost some real dry humor, some skepticism in it that was, you know, to me it was odd. This whole thing was like a circus. But when I met patient 17, that was the moment when I realized I needed to do this story because patient 17 is what you'd imagine to be an average person, not the kind of person. He, he is above average height, but he's not, <laughs> otherwise he's an average person. 
he's like a giant, he's six foot nine. I call him my giant friend, but we've become really good friends. And, and he really compelled me to continue on this case and, and follow this as far as I can. And that's what you see in the film Patient 17. Can you talk a little bit about how Patient 17 came to know about Dr. Lear and maybe even a step back before you talk about that, how he came to be aware that there was something in his body that was um, alien, for lack of a better term, something foreign, like an object that was causing him physical pain um, at a particular time in his life and how he took that and – you know, basically sought out the services of this uh, this very specific type of surgeon. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. He, he didn't seek out the surgeon. Uh, patient 17 had abductive experiences his whole life. This is something that he kept private, even from family and friends. He said it's a very difficult thing to talk about because everybody thinks you're crazy or if you're religious. They think that you you no longer believe in God if you talk about aliens. So he really is a kind of quiet, uh, you know, silent cowboy type. You know, he 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 has a a sense of uh, kind of inner reservation. He he remains and was at the very beginning of this filming, and throughout the film, he and I are the biggest skeptics of of what we're witnessing. Even the patient himself. So he, he had abductive experiences, which he can't deny. He, he is convinced those experiences are real. But the object in his leg was causing him, or he was feeling pain in his leg and got some x-rays and CT scans, and they found this foreign body that was denser than bone, and it was an alloy we later found out. But the issue was he didn't equate the two at all. And then it was just happenstance that he was doing some of his work over at someone's house who knew about Dr. Lear. And I guess he saw some UFO posters or something on the screen and and told the guy the story and they connected him with Dr. Lear. So he didn't think that it was connected to his abductive experiences, but there were times in the operating room where his eyes became as big as flying saucers, man, because there were some strange things afoot that day and since then. Wow. Uh, I just want to ask you about the surgery itself. You you show an establishing shot in the documentary of uh, a specific hospital where I guess the surgery took place. When when you're in there with Dr. Lear and patient 17 and the other surgeon, is, does it feel different, like a different operation than anything you can imagine as being, I guess, whatever you could call a normal procedure? Is it is it something like they're renting space in the hospital or is it a place where Dr. Lear works? Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Sure. It was actually quite casual. I mean, these days, surgeons oftentimes do rent out surgical facilities in order to conduct their business. So it was, in a sense, just private and casual. But the tide turned when a bunch of you know, UFO crowds came into the waiting room and we had journalists who were not authorized to be there, you know, with cameras trying to push in, it became a circus. And and that's really what emotionally bonded me with Dr. Lear and with the patient was kind of getting people out who weren't supposed to be there. And I, I snuck patient 17 out the back door. He and I kind of made a beeline out the back door after the surgery because he does not want attention. He does not want this to be associated 
you know, with his everyday life. He just wants to ride his motorbikes and have his normal life. So the surgery itself was very casual, but what some of the things that occurred during the surgery and the emotions people went through, such as patient 17, that's what was highly unusual. And if you want, we can follow the format of what you guys talk about. You know, here are the facts. Mm -hmm. I can go through the facts and then I can tell you where it gets crazy. Oh, please do. We'd love to hear it. Okay. (laughs) So the, the facts with this very bizarre aspect of what I call the phenomenon. So UFOs is part of what I call the phenomenon. It's kind of a catch all uh, term about the apparent display that we have been experiencing since at least the beginning of recorded human history. You know, lights in the sky, these interactions with other non-human intelligences. When you put all of these together, uh, that's what I call the phenomenon. So here are the facts. You know, millions of people claim not only alien, extraterrestrial, they believe, interaction, but also abduction. It's not something that is so far off the scope that it doesn't reach a huge amount of the population here on Earth. Something to note about that, again, here are the facts. John Mack, who is the former head of psychiatry at Harvard University, openly talked about this, wrote books about this. He was a great voice before he died for the true look at this phenomenon. He actually, from a psychological standpoint, did thorough testing on all of these abduction claims and found that this was not fictitious, it was not a psychological disorder, and it was not a fabrication in any way that these experiences were indeed happening to the people claiming them. He even went on Oprah Winfrey one time and they they talked about it with one of these abductees. So I started looking into that and I'm thinking, okay, well, brighter minds than me took it seriously. Let me at least give it a fair shake. Another fact, you know, this film is about Dr. Roger Lear and the surgical removal and scientific analysis of this alleged alien implant. And, uh, you know, his team does in fact believe that these are highly advanced nanotechnological devices cut out of people and the one thing, and I think this is important as far as facts about UFOs, because we really don't have that many facts. I, I think there's one thing I can stand behind, which is that the, the one thing we know, we know for certain about UFOs, is that they represent a huge amount of energy in a small amount of space. And this is recognized by our Department of Defense. There are unclassified documents that convey this clearly. So we know factually that this phenomena of, of disks in the sky or uh, interaction with non-humans, we know that this is happening. Can we trust it? Well, that's where it gets crazy. Yeah. One, one of the things you point out in there is, uh, in the film is, is truth something that is, can ever really be known? And I think that's something that we tackle on this show, and it, you really look into it in this film. Uh, my goodness, you do. All right, so speaking of these facts and kind of staying in this realm here, uh, when patient 17 had this surgery, had the the small piece removed from his leg, uh, what happened to it then? So right after 
the retrieval of this foreign body that was cut out of his leg. It was put into a serum of his own blood cells for preservation. And the first move is we went down to uh, SEAL laboratories and used their scanning electron microscope. And for me, that was the one of the first times I got to witness the really close-up analysis of something. You get a little bit of spectral analysis, so you, you get a little bit of knowledge of, of what this thing is made of. I thought we were going to get all the answers that day. I think so did patient 17, but there's highly advanced equipment to determine different things like isotopic analysis, which turned out to be very important. That can't be done just with a scanning electron microscope. So the first thing we did was went down to SEAL laboratories and we looked at it under high magnification and tried to get a basic fundamental spectral analysis to understand, is this object interesting or anomalous? In fact, is it even an alloy? The, the really strange part that happened in the surgical room that I witnessed with my own eyes now, I'm going to put a caveat to this. They, they were scanning. I mean, look, I thought it was funny as, as hell. They were using a stud finder to try to find this object, and, and, yep. and that's, a const, that's a construction tool. And let me tell you, they weren't even using it right. So at, from the right <laughs> off the bat, I was just cracking up, and like I kind of got a bad feeling in my stomach. And I was like, guys, before you cut into him, you'll hear this in the film. And people laugh at the right moments, but – you know, I said, you know, do you have proper optics? Like, you know, do you have ultrasound optics? And they're like, yes, of course, we're going to find exactly where it is. So I'm already like, what is going on here? But they used a Gauss meter. A, a Gauss meter measures, you know, to a very small degree, electromagnetic frequency, just the basics. So I took it to my camera. I just wanted to see, and the batteries in my camera made this thing ding. Sure enough, when it was in his body, every time they took this over his leg, you got a frequency or you got a ding. So there's two possible situations here. One is they're misusing that like they were the stud finder or this thing was actually emitting frequency. And I have absolutely no way to tell, you know, from just visual and being a novice at this time to all of these techniques, but it was something that, you know, made our eyes go big. Okay, well, let's get this thing out. Mm -hmm. um, but the first real look at it from the analysis was at Steel Laboratory looking at this landscape. I mean, it appeared to me on the screen like, you know, pictures you see of the topography of the moon. It, it, it was interesting. And at this point in our story, another character enters the narrative, and that would be Steve Colbert. Could you tell us a little bit about Steve Colbert? Wow. Well, I have learned a lot about Steve Colbert uh, since the filming, actually. He's a very controversial character, and you might recall, and I don't want to give it away, I want people to watch the film, but there's a moment in the film when he is reading the analysis to Patient 17, and Patient 17 just looks, like, furious. I mean, he just looks like uh, the most skeptical human, the most skeptical six foot nine human you've ever seen, but there's a moment right after that, and you can't make this stuff up where he discloses, Steve Colburn discloses something to me, and I am just utterly shocked because it changes everything. And uh, so I'm not going to give that away, but I'll just say that he was Roger Lear's lead scientific advisor for the analysis 
because they did 16 objects prior to object 17. And because I didn't have custodianship ever of those other objects, it really puts into question the reports of those objects. Because once you get analysis, it can be read in a variety of ways. It's actually open to interpretation in some ways. And what I didn't say in the film, I don't believe I did, I had this analysis looked at people from NASA, the head meteorite specialist at UCLA, credible scientists, many of whom would not go on camera about this subject, but I had it looked at from a lot of different sources other than just Roger's team after Roger passed away. So uh, just to stay on uh, Steve for a moment, he when he's introduced in the film, he uh, describes himself as a material scientist who works on carbon nanotubes in his primary job. So immediately you get this sense of, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. I trust this person as an expert in this field. Then you get a little bit further, and I don't want to – I hope this isn't spoiling anything, but I want to read just a quote that uh, he states in the film. The ultimate goal is to hack the alien internet. We have reason to believe that there's a complex web of communication between aliens and some supercomputer someplace, and abductees are also plugged into the system. And it's just kind of like, what? Mm. It's just like, it seems to drop that like a bomb out of the blue, and, and it doesn't really come up again, and it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to think about, but it also kind of makes you think maybe this guy's got a little bit of an axe to grind, a little bit of a, uh, personal motivation and the way he's communicating with patient 17 and with you as a filmmaker. And that's the contention that you feel in that room with that revelation that occurs when he's reading him the results. You know, these are complex individuals and they, as a documentary filmmaker, they reveal to me little bits. And as I pursue them as a subject, more and more tends to be revealed. That was a jaw-dropping moment for me, hearing that theory of these alleged implants. Now, all of that aside, my singular goal was to get the object into credible labs for blind testing of elemental analysis and isotopic analysis, because those facts do not lie if they're not tainted with error. And so this is kind of my motivation is to show the human side of it, to show the belief systems of these individuals, show what they're going through, show what they do, show what they tell, and then have the audience decide whether or not you give weight because convincing somebody, you know, proof for one person is vastly different than proof for another person. We all require different elements of proof in order to be convinced of something. And that's the fun. That's the fun of telling a story purely as a documentary filmmaker is letting the audience decide for themselves. Well, speaking of those different types of proof that people in their life seek, um, there's a real progression in the film, um, in the, I guess, character, for lack of a better word, of Patient 17. He seems to go from being kind of on the fence about the nature of the foreign object in his body. And while he does seem to believe that some, you know, abduction experiences did take place earlier in his life, he kind of seems a little bit more skeptical at first before the surgery happens. And then as the film progresses, 
it feels as though his religious faith is actually being challenged by this notion of this thing in his body. He makes a comment about how, you know, if there are aliens, then basically all bets are off as far as my belief system goes. Um, my question to you is with being surrounded by these supposed experts who are feeding him information and describing what they see as evidence, is there a sense that you know, he was maybe being manipulated in a way that could be a detriment to his, you know, mental well-being. And how do you how do you square that with the film that you're making? Yeah, well, luckily, you know, he and I were kind of teammates in this. We do an interview, we'd step outside and we'd talk it through and we decide how much weight to give one person's opinion compared to the other. You know, we were truly and are truly seeking to define exactly what was taken out of his leg. I do see him struggle from time to time with everything from faith to his own personal belief system. I mean, he is sure that he has had abductive experiences. This is something that's been with him his whole life. And, and typically this is generational. So if you find like John Mack did, you know, a hundred people claiming abductive experiences, even if they haven't asked their family genetically, it seems their parents, their mother and father or grandparents would also have these experiences. So the, the short answer is yes. You did see in the film a little bit when I directly asked him, would this shake the foundations of your faith if this turned out to be something not from here? And he says, yes, I think it could. But at the same time, you know, he's a truth seeker. He wants to know. And as far as manipulation of his thoughts, I mean, you can see his sense of humor. I hope you caught this. This was, for me, one of the funniest moments in the movie. And there is a lot of humor in there, if you catch it. Uh, Steve Colburn was going through the analysis, and he was kind of arguing with Patient 17, it seemed like, about the origin of this object. And then Steve just says, do you think your pain was initiated by your nervous system by this device? you know, to punish you in some way. And patient 17 just looks directly at the camera. The only time he mm -hmm. did in the whole film and he goes, well, you know, I've been a bad boy. Yeah. So his sense of humor, I think really, he has a great sense of humor. And I think his sense of humor really allowed him to separate, you know, the immediate emotion of being told things like he was being told during the filmmaking process. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the questions that we know our audience is wondering as they listen to our interview today is going to be for people who believe that there is an extraterrestrial uh, origin for these sort of implants. One of the most immediate questions becomes to what end? For what, for what purpose would this, uh, would this practice of abduction and implantation uh, occur? And we were hoping, uh, that you could give us a, a few words on your perspective of these beliefs and what, what the motivation is seen as being. So you're asking me, what the motivation of these alleged non-humans would be to implant humans with some alleged nanotechnological chip. Is, is that precisely what it's you're It's a simple asking? question, Jeremy. Come on. <laughs> well, the, the question, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's it in one because the, the idea is, okay, let's, let's say that this is the case. Then why would, why would individuals uh, be abducted? What, what, yeah, what's the purpose of this, at least in the eyes of people who believe these are extraterrestrial in origin? Okay, so it, it is a simple question on face value. But when you really want to look at this with any sincerity, mm-hmm. that becomes a, not a simple question. That, becomes a, it, it, that goes into the field of broad speculation mm-hmm. because the fact is we don't know. If this is true which is something that I I have not swallowed that pill yet. Mm -hmm. But if this is true, then we can only speculate on the purpose of this. Now, you have to look at it from psychological and physical. The, The phenomenon itself seems to be occurring in patterns of reinforcement over time. This is well documented by the author Jacques Vallée. He's a colleague of mine. He takes a scientific approach. And in fact, one of the reasons we've recently bonded on looking into this stuff is because he is currently doing elemental and isotopic analysis on 15 samples of anomalous aerial vehicles or UAPs or UFOs that have crashed or landed. So this work is being done. The reason someone would be chipped and tagged like a deer or an animal or a whale or a shark like we do as humans on Earth, your guess is as good as mine. It seems very... um kind of uh, rudimentary to me if there's an advanced intelligence engaging humanity, I understand 
the psychological operations of these waves of UFOs to create some sort of understanding within humanity, that makes sense. That the chipping and tagging, don't you think there would be a better way? But that's, you know, look, I'm coming at this saying, let's look at this and try to see what we can find out. But your guess is frankly... As, as good as mine. Well, there's a lot of talk in the film, too, about the idea that some of these uh, devices emit frequency. And can you talk a little bit about that, about the idea of this being nanotechnology, about being some kind of active electronics rather than just a fragment of some kind? Because, I mean, I could even I would maybe even be more inclined to believe that it was a, a byproduct of some kind of abduction or like some scrap of material that was lodged into somebody's body. But then there's also talk of like there is no entry wound or anything mm-hmm. like that. Talk a little bit about some of the possibilities of what these might be hypothetically. Sure. I mean, because look, there there is a lot of people, you know, that come forward saying they have all sorts of, you know, alien implants. This is something that people write to me about, you know, every week I get a new email now, there are a lot of foreign bodies that are in people and they don't know them. I mean, the old pencil lead in the hand thing, uh, somebody I knew, I think it was her grandfather, was the oldest living human with a bullet still in his brain, you know, is in the Guinness Book of World Records. There are foreign objects that get into people's bodies and sometimes they don't see an entry wound. An entry wound would never be apparent years down the line. I mean, this could be road rash was what we were thinking. The joke between me and patient 17 is, after all of this, what if we find out it was just a Tonka truck? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. something that he slipped on as a kid. That's obviously the first thing we're, we're looking at is, is this a piece of pencil lead? Is this a piece of a nail? Is this road rash? Uh, these are most likely going to be the answers for 99.9% of the population. Oddly enough, because I can't talk about the other 16 removals that Dr. Lear did, Mm -hmm. but I I can talk about 17 because when he died, I picked up the ball. Nobody was doing it. So I I had it sent. I had it sent to Northern Analytics, and they're a great laboratory, and they did not know what they were testing. And I was shocked that, no, this was not a, a piece of pencil lead. No, this was not road rash. No, this was not a Tonka truck. In fact, the evidence that we acquired, and it's one scientific test, you need to get many more, at least three, to make sure that there was not contamination in the test. But as stands now, the first test that we have definitively shows two things of significance, in in my opinion, and those who this is their wheelhouse. One is that this object has 36 different elements in it. Primarily, the object is iron. From what I understand, if you just took like a common nail, maybe you'd get five different alloys. Uh, I have not tested a basic nail under broad spectrum elemental analysis, but this is what I'm hearing from the people that actually do this analysis every day. More importantly, Oh, and by the way, I'll just tell you a funny story. I was at UCLA and having a beer after talking with the head meteorite specialist to rule out that this was meteoric iron because that's what was being told to patient 17. And in fact, it's not meteoric iron. I asked one of the world's specialists. He heads the Museum of Meteorites at UCLA, and it is not meteoric iron. So that was really cool to 
cross that off the list. But as I'm sitting there looking through the results, a nanotoxicologist, uh, just a dude, sat down next to me while I was having my beer, saw me looking through and goes, what you looking at? And I go, hey, well, what do you think of this? This was an object found in a dude's body because he told me he was a nanotoxicologist. And I said, would you want this out if it was in you? And he's looking through it and he's like, yes, you'd want this out. <laughs> I mean, this has like arsenic and heavy metals and iridium and all sorts of things. So the elements themselves, having 36 elements playing nicely together in a single small sample, you know, that was interesting. But what got really interesting, and, and again, this is, it, it is really simple, uh, is the isotopic analysis. Um, would it be appropriate to just explain that really simply? Absolutely. Uh, tell us about, you know, how elements are made up in neutrons. And also about Nanoman, right? Oh, yeah. Well, we got to get to Nanoman. But first, let's start with the okay. isotopes. Yeah, isotopic analysis uh, based on the number of neutrons in the nucleus. Is that correct? So from what I understand, if you cut a piece of mountain and you pull out, you know, zinc, there are going to be five different isotopic structures within that zinc here on Earth. Four can be tested for their ratios, right? And these create, like, this, the isotopes will stabilize the zinc. So we have zinc 64, zinc 66, 67, and 68. That's what you can test for, and that's what we did test for. So my understanding, and the way it's been explained to me by numerous professionals, is that you're going to get a certain terrestrial ratio. And in fact, this is going to be homogenous on Earth. So there's going to be a certain percentage of zinc-64 in any sample from Earth. And you can look at this, you know, just look up on Wikipedia, if you're 1% outside the terrestrial ratio, that's when they say, yeah, this is not from here, if the tests are correct. And in fact, you can tell a little bit about distance because of our supernova creating these elements the way they are on Earth just about how far these ratios of isotopes will, will convey that information to you. And so what was so fascinating about this was that in the zinc-64 ratio that we got, we got far above what would be considered terrestrial. So we got 51.1%. The terrestrial ratio for zinc-64 is 48.64%. So even with the, the, the standard or relative standard deviation, which you have to apply because of the machines that are being used, that puts us well outside a, a, the terrestrial ratio for zinc-64, either above or below with that standard relative you know, deviation. So essentially, to make that really, really simple, if you go to the moon and you collect zinc-64, it's going to be a different ratio than here on Earth. If you go to the Andromeda galaxy and you collect zinc-64, it's going to be a different ratio than it is here on Earth. So that's what was so fascinating to me, is that we get this scientific analysis back, and any way you cut it, above or below with, this, with the standard deviation, we have zinc that appears to be non-terrestrial, which is so bizarre. So I, I went to my mentor... George Knapp, he's an investigative journalist in this field, but also just in his normal life in Las Vegas. And he said to me, you have to get more tests. You need to, you know, quantify this as best as possible. 
he, he said, look, it's our job to investigate the unexplained, not explain the uninvestigated. Keep <laughs> investigating. I like that. So yeah. I thought that was a great, yeah, I thought that was a great quote because a lot of people don't do that. They, they jump, you know, obviously to conclusions. So, you know, back to these terrestrial ratios, I started doing some research on the internet and trying to find academic papers on Zinc 64. And I hit pay dirt, man. I found this guy. He is now a medical doctor in middle America. And he wrote this like definitive paper on extraterrestrial zinc because we study extraterrestrial zinc isotopes and isotopes in general all the time here on Earth. We study them from meteorites. So we have comparables. And so it's so funny. I found this, this doctor and he wrote this definitive paper, but it was like so long ago. I mean, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago as part of a thesis. And I come calling him up at his medical practice asking him about how we could have results like this. And this guy was just rolling his eyes in the back of his head. And his conclusion to me was essentially that the lab did not triple wash the zinc 64. And that in fact, nickel 64 can contaminate the results of zinc 64. And I was like, perfect. I have an answer. That's a real answer. So I went back to the laboratory called the, the guys that did the analysis, and I said, will you take a look at the results for me? Will you tell me the process you went through? And they stand by their results. They did triple wash it. It's in the notes, and it's my problem what the results are. I mean, that was their, their standpoint to me. Hmm. So clearly, clearly I need to get more analysis done, but the journey towards that is what this film is about. And you do get some answers in the film, some really interesting answers, but it's a mystery. This whole thing truly is a bona fide mystery. It really is a huge mystery. And I'm, I want to ask you something that seems uh, extremely simple and something that maybe uh, somebody watching the film wouldn't think about. But how confident are you that the sample taken from patient 17's leg is the exact same sample that was then tested f well, with the isotopic stuff and then tested again. Oh, you further. mean like chain of command? Yeah, yeah. How confident? Chain of custody. Sorry. Chain of custody. How confident are you that that's the same object that now, you know, you've done all these tests on? You also were, you weren't able to get it back. You had a hard time, like, getting a hold of it again to run more tests. Isn't that right? Oh, man. This, this, yes. This is an ongoing battle. I mean, ongoing. When Dr. Lear died, people started fighting over custodianship of these samples. So to answer your question directly, that is a huge issue for me. That is a huge issue. As I've gone through this and I've learned more, that is one of the questions that I have. I know the sample, what it looks like, the container. I know exactly what it looks like. I can identify that with my own eyes. But Getting it sent to a credible laboratory and having it done, I mean, I was not allowed to be there for that process. You know, I mean, nobody was. You know, it was sent to the lab, FedEx, for that testing. So how can you know definitively that is the same object? That's something patient 17 and I keep going over. We currently do know where the object is. We, these tests that we did were destructive, but there's plenty of object remaining to do more tests. So my six foot nine giant friend and I are banging on doors. We are trying to get it back 
for further analysis. But this is one of those things. You have to then become a conspiracy theorist. Because let's say you were to switch out the sample and send it over. You just happen to have a piece that is not a meteorite of extraterrestrial zinc 64. I mean, that's crazier than the object being sent and there being some sort of miscalculation. So this is a problem. This is one of the things we're running into is we need that sample back and we're trying to get it back. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this is really, this is a great place for us to bring in a character that exists in your universe mm-hmm. uh, in several places, a gentleman that goes by Nano Man. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Nano Man, how, how he figures into the larger context here? Yeah, well, so what I wanted to do in this movie is I wanted to focus in on people who would go on camera who had certain skill sets. Why Nano Man is in my universe or on my radar is because I started a documentary series on him probably about six years ago. I was tipped off by a naval uh, individual, somebody in the Navy, and they have guided me before in my work, highest ranking military official that I've ever been in contact with, and they've always given me kind of good tips. There's actually a current case that just made the news and will be making more news that I've been on for quite some time 
thanks to tips like this. So the tip was, there's a guy, his name is Chris Cooper. I call him Nanoman because I thought it was funny. and He's kind of like a comic character for me. He's a very intelligent nanophysicist. He was military funded uh, to a huge amount for doing work on nanotechnology and water filtration. And in fact, the military used some of his product in order to, um, you know, put out special teams that can, you know, kind of use water filters anywhere. You know, he's kind of like this interesting guy, but I was connected to him purely because of a propulsion device that he was creating called, well, he called it the space drive. And what's really interesting about it is that he was getting a forward reaction. He was getting forward thrust uh, without any uh, pushback. It was in a vacuum and he couldn't figure out why. So my series was documenting the trials and errors that he was making, uh, the progress he was making on this thing called the space drive, which was something that was of interest to the United States Navy at that time. So that's the reason I started with him. It was purely propulsion and science. And he has a very brilliant mind, and he later revealed to me that in fact, what he was trying to do with this device was create a spaceship and then disclosed to me that he was in possession of other nanomaterial that was anomalous and that he would give it to me to take to NASA and have it analyzed. And I thought this was like a joke because he handed me pure, it looked like pure water. It was ethanol. And in fact, you'll see in one of my short films about Nanoman, I did take it to NASA and I did take it to the NASA Ames Nanotechnology Lab. And we spent a whole day analyzing this stuff and we could visually verify that there was something uh, quite odd in what he gave me. So that was my first introduction to Nanoman was following him through a, a series of shorts that I've put out, although a feature film will be coming out. So he was kind of a guy that I knew that I could take the results to who wouldn't just disregard it. He would at least tell me his opinion openly about what it is that it might be. And so that's why I brought him into the movie, uh, was somebody to look at it without just completely dismissing it. That's fantastic. And that's often a, that can often be a challenging thing to find someone who is truly objectively and open-mindedly investigating something, especially if there is a, um, a, a feeling of mystery for some, for some people that ends up functioning as a stigma. So without, uh, without spoiling patient 17, which we're being pretty careful about, uh, I love that you're pointing out how uh, how Dr. Cooper, how Nanoman functions in the, the larger context of your work. And this brings us to a couple of points that we wanted to, we wanted to ask you when we were, uh, researching some of your other work and some of your background and, and things that you have studied and written about, uh, in, in this larger context, uh, there's especially a biographical detail we wanted to ask you about that relates to our earlier episode. Yeah, uh, we recently did an episode on Titanic conspiracies, and we were just looking through your IMDb bio, and uh, it seems like you have a very interesting personal connection to that, that tragedy. Yeah, actually, I do. You guys uh, do your research, I guess. 
So I'm named after Edward Lockyer. I, my friends and enemies call me forename. My name is Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell. And Lockyer was after Edward Lockyer. And he was a, a passenger on the Titanic who did not make it. Uh, he did fall in love, actually, interestingly enough, on, on the boat. And the passenger he fell in love with was a woman that when the when the kind of safety rafts were, were going down, he reached out and, and dropped her down because the boat was already going down. She broke both of her legs, but he threw her his wallet and his watch. And years later, she actually came and found my, my grandmother's family and gave them back the wallet and the watch and said, he told me to tell you that he loves you. And that's how we know his story or else we, we wouldn't have known it. I think it was passenger number 53, if I recall. Wow. I don't remember. Yeah. That, that's, that's really, really cool to hear. I mean, and tragic, but also just what a piece of history. Just having that kind of connection is it's yeah. pretty, pretty rare. Oh so. yeah. I was just, I was just actually in Budapest. Um, I, I premiered in Europe, my film at the National Museum of Denmark and gave a, a lecture about UFOs, which is actually free on, on my website, um, extraordinarybeliefs.com. You can watch that whole lecture. But when I was traveling through Europe with my mom, which was cool, it was like the drunk history of Europe. It was hilarious. <laughs> we, we made it to Budapest, and they have a Titanic museum there. And you could look up the names of the passengers and that sort of thing. And yeah, so Edward Lockyer, that was a pretty cool. And he was actually a grocer, and, but also a, a boxer. And he was coming over on the Titanic uh, for a fight, for boxing. So that was pretty neat because that is also in my history of martial athletics. So I, I didn't learn that till much later in life, though. So just to stick on uh, the martial athletics there, please, uh, can you come back on sometime and talk to us about quantum jujitsu, please? Sure, sure. That was either the best or the dumbest move I ever made is, is naming my particular <laughs> MMA quantum jujitsu. That, that created so much hell for me because it, it sounds so strange. But, you know, look, so did warrior yoga at the time I trademarked it in like 2000. You know, people were giving me hate mail because in yoga, what do you mean warrior? And, you know, now like even companies have stolen the name and that kind of oh, thing. Wow. You know, it takes time for people to to advance in, in their thought. It's just a name. What's behind the name is more important. And yes, we can always do a show. There's so much to say about martial arts because really martial arts is what trained my and, and honed in on my skills to approach things like journalism inch by inch. I was always kind of the smaller and lighter weight fighter. You know, all my black belts that I've produced they're like, you know, 210 pound monsters of pure muscle. So in order to convince them to train with me, I had to beat them and, you know, <laughs> and continuously. So, so I learned very quickly that, it, you know, martial arts, like a documentary and investigation, it's a matter of inch by inch, life's a cinch, you know, yard by yard, life <laughs> is hard, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, seriously, I mean, whether it's quantum jujitsu or any of the subjects of some of the other films that you've made in your series, we uh, would no joke love to have you back as much as you would like to be back. I mm-hmm. think I speak for the group in saying that. And Definitely. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. And let's end on one uh, final final question here that I think our audience really wants to know. Uh, you talked a little bit about the reaction to patient 17 and we'd love to hear how uh, what, what kind of correspondence that you've been receiving if it's leading you in any interesting directions and in general what uh, are some of your future projects coming up oh absolutely so first thing I just want to say is that the film patient 17 we've been talking about I my one purpose in, in filmmaking initially was to uplift the visual aesthetic so that when you watch these films, they're true, honest journalism, but that they show you the beliefs of people and they show you in a way that is visually pleasing and fun to watch. So I I hope I achieved that. And I think I did with Patient 17. A lot of people are watching it now that it's on iTunes in the documentary section. People can go rent it now. So that's the cool thing is this movie is opening people up to a much more broad spectrum of my work. I will also say that this mystery is far from over. I am on this case, as is Patient 17. So you will get a lot of information from this movie that will, I hope, weaponize your curiosity so that you continue to look into these things. And it's kind of like how you guys run your show. You're telling people what the facts are and then where it gets crazy. And so hopefully there's a similar tonality uh, in the visual medium that I use as film. Additionally, the, the future projects, I am so excited, you guys. Now that I have proper distribution, mass distribution for my first film, I mean, I've been at this a long time now, you are going to see some things, some areas in the field of ufology and beyond that have been totally inaccessible to, 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 to the average person for decades. And this information will now be coming out. Specifically, I'm going to tell you two things. One, Skinwalker Ranch. I am working directly with the people closest to it. I have been to the area and on. I have been given with my mentor, George Knapp, because of his book that he wrote about it. We have been given the first time ever access by the tribal nation of, of, of the Ute Indians in order to film on the premises, on the reservation, the sovereign nation, and bring that footage to you and to the public. This has been an ongoing project, and it's highly informed. Uh, it's a separate website, huntthiskinwalker.com, but you can get to it from mine. But you will see never-before-seen footage and what's coming with that. So that is one thing I'm really excited about. And the other thing, and this is a big one, the Elvis of ufology. You know, it's like as if you find Elvis alive and there he is. You have in the public realm probably three hours of footage only because of George Knapp on Bob Lazar, one of the most famous Mm -hmm. names in ufology. Well, I'm going to be very happy to be able to announce very soon a definitive documentary on and with Bob Lazar. Wow. Wow. You heard it here first, friends and neighbors. Uh, we're looking forward to that. And Jeremy, we're going to have to 
get an update as this as this project coalesces. And whenever you're ready to uh, do an interview about it, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for running an exceptional show. As I said, I've been a fan from your first video all the way up to the one that you most recently put out, your podcast. I really am just like a kid in a candy store excited to be on with you guys. Keep doing good work because the key here is, is that people need to become participants in these mysteries and not just sit back behind their keyboard and be consumers. People need to activate and do whatever they can to help look into these true mysteries that are occurring. You know, that's the problem with peeking behind the curtain, man. You can't unsee and you can't unknow. I've heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) That's a quote. Yes, thank you so much, Jeremy Corbell, the investigatory filmmaker behind Patient 17, which is available now. On iTunes, uh, among other places. Is there anywhere else um, people can get it, or is that kind of the primary point? Oh, yeah, it's on a whole bunch of pay-per-view platforms from Xbox to Amazon to Google Play to ones I've never even heard about, but you can easily find it on iTunes Documentary. Well, and like we said, well, maybe we did. Maybe we said this off, off air. I, I enjoyed it very much, both for the content and the aesthetic. It's a very well shot film. It's paced in a very interesting and accessible way and very visually appealing and, uh, makes very good use of a Giorgio Moroder track that I dig mm-hmm. quite a lot. So props to you for having good taste in the electronic music department too, Jeremy. And usually when we close the show, we like to close with uh with a way for the audience uh all of us listening out there to contact us or experts is there a uh, place where people could reach out to you directly jeremy absolutely so if they go to extraordinarybeliefs.com and they go to submit uh, a note it'll be you know info at extraordinarybeliefs.com or editor at extraordinarybeliefs.com but any email that they send from my site will get to me that's perfect. So, everybody, write to us. Write to Jeremy. Think about this stuff. If you have any questions, you have any comments, just do it. Get involved. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter where we're Conspiracy Stuff. We're on Instagram, Conspiracy Stuff Show. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, You can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.